Hi David, thank you for joining me on the Football CFB podcast. No problem, pleasure. Um, David, I'll start by um, asking you, you were born in Aberdeen. When did you start playing football as a youngster and when was the first time that you felt you had a chance of becoming a pro? Um, well, it's a bit of a, a weird one really, I... I didn't start playing football until I was seven, um, which was late uh, in my era. Um, my sister's more interested in playing football than I did. Um, my dad used to take us, myself and my sister, down to the local park, Duffy Park, and I only went down on a Sunday to get the ice cream. My sister was was playing football, and um, and it was only when Aberdeen actually won the League Cup in 1976, I think I was about eight at that point, um, that my mum and dad took me down Union Street, saw the open-top bus, bought me the flags and kits and all sorts of stuff and for some reason after that I just got hooked on on, on playing football um, and the bizarre thing was about a year later I tried out for the primary school um, team and I didn't make it um, I actually um, the day of the game in fact the day before the first game of the season for the primary school team someone pulled out with flu or a holiday or something um, and I ended up um, getting called in to play, um, and I think it was a bit of a nightmare. I came on as a sub and got subbed off, oh, so uh, it wasn't great. Um, but anyway, after that, I just kept plugging away and plugging away, and I would probably say maybe by the time I was 11, um, I, also, I was pretty quick, and that helped me a lot, and um, I began to sort of dominate you know, school games and boys clubs and, and what have you. Um, I was playing under 14, I was 10 years old, I was playing uh, under 14. Um, and then I, once I hit 12, they put me to under 16. So um, it, it wasn't a normal um, pathway that most you know, professional footballers had. I wasn't interested at the start. And then um, probably wasn't good enough at the start and I just kept working away. And that's been my sort of method and motto throughout my career is that you know, I know it's going to end and I have to... I think at pace I was strong, um, but I felt that um, you know I, I couldn't just rely on that. I just had the hard work and everything, and the, and the desire to keep going. Obviously, from there you were signed by Aberdeen at a young age, and by the time you were seventeen, amazingly, you were a regular in their first team. How did that feel, and how did you handle that pressure? No, it was good. Um, obviously, it was, it was a dream to play from a local boys club, boys team. Um, by that time, I was, you know, watching Aberdeen play every week. My dad would take me, and obviously, it was fortunate enough to to watch on TV them playing, beating the Real Madrid, and you know, having all the watching Willie Miller, John Hewitt, Alan McQuaid, Jim Layton, um, and then a few years later, I was actually playing the same team as them, which was pretty um, surreal, really. Um, but, but it all happened. Alec Ferguson was. Um, you know, very good at man management, and um, that, in those days, there was only two subs. Um, and, and the funny part was, I would before the games. Um, I was, obviously, I was seventeen, even at 14, 15, 16, 17, And my dad would take me into the the Bonacore Golf Club across the road from um, Petodri. You know, we would go there. Um, I'd go in. I'd sit in the locker room because I was too young to to get in the bar and he'd come in with Coke and crisps and then I'd walk along and, um, you know, we'd watch Aberdeen. And in this particular time, no mobile phones or nothing, um, I was in the squad. And so I just walked over to Petaudry. My dad was probably waiting for me to go back in. I obviously never went back. Alec Ferguson made me as a sub. 
um, and then I got on. So my dad didn't even any clue, you know, that day that I was going to be a sub because I couldn't call and tell him. Um, obviously went with his friends and watched the game and saw his son come on as a sub with 20 minutes to go. I think I came on for Billy Stark against Hamilton. Um, and then the, the most bizarre thing, and this is how my life changed, after the game, um, I walked in as normal to the, the Bonacore Golf Club to see my dad in the, the locker room. And I didn't even get to the locker room. I got taken in the front door. Somebody bought me a beer and I was signing autographs. Ah, sensational. Yeah, I before, um, I was in the locker room with all the little kids eating crisps. I wasn't. I was too young to get in the bar yet. A week later, at the same age, I'm suddenly turned into this superstar. That's amazing. And you mentioned Alec Ferguson there. How was he with you as a youngster? I, you know, he was good. Um, you know, he was very hard on me. Um, I remember one um, we were in the youth the youth cup. We played the youth cup final at uh, Petardry. Um, it was the year um, Aberdeen won the league. I think they beat Hearts away from home, um, and to clinchily, I think Stuart McKinney scored the winner. Um, but obviously, because it was such a big deal, they, they, they wanted to present the trophy again at Petardry, and it just so happened that um, the youth team. Um, under 18 team I played Celtic in the Scottish Youth Cup final and I think I was only 14 at the time and um, you know Willie Garner was the assistant manager and he talks about you know big day all the first team players are here to watch you play there was about 12 15,000 people at the game um, so, so you know it's, it's a great opportunity for you so I think at half time we came in 2 or 3 nothing down and um, you know Willie Garner comes in and says you know I told you it's a big game just you know, no more goals, just make sure we get through the game, don't embarrass it, all that kind of stuff. And then the door bursts off the hinges and Alec Ferguson comes in and basically goes around. And it probably lasted about 30 seconds, but he didn't miss anybody, shouted at everybody, reared a go at everybody. And it was like a whirlwind. Some of us were, I was 14 or 15 at the time, and um, obviously some of them were a bit younger. Like obviously Joe Miller was there, um, Stevie Gray was playing there. Um, Derek White was playing for Celtic that day, so... Um, a lot of future stars there, um, and as you know, when Ferguson went out the the dressing room, everybody sat totally gobsmacked and amazed at what just happened. Um, but having said that, we won the game five three, and um, he was the first to congratulate us. And um, and I, I think for me, with Alec Ferguson, he at a young age he trusted me enough, even though I made some mistakes early on. He trusted me enough to play me every week, and um, you know. As I say, in my opinion, I had limited ability. I was I was quick and I was, you know, tough. I could tackle a bit. You know, I don't think the use of the ball was great. Um, but um, he stuck by me and, you know, if it wasn't for him having the belief in me, I wouldn't have had the career I had. Obviously, he was a big influence, as you've just said, which is some of the stories there are brilliant. At that time, obviously, it's hard to foresee the future, but... Are you shocked at all by what he went on to achieve at Manchester United or having worked with him um, close hand, are you, um, did you always think he would go on to bigger and better things? Yeah, I think so. I think the one thing I noticed about him and, and I found this at other clubs I've been to is that Alec Ferguson and Archie Knox on a Monday night, he'd go and watch Lossie Mouth play in office or he'd go and watch an amateur team or he'd watch an amateur. he just, it was like football non-stop. Um, he took every training session. You know, he was on a Monday night, even at times, the you know, the primary school kids that had just, you know, went to high school. Um, I was phoning them at one point. The, the car park, the Ash car park opposite Petodre, we used to train there on a Monday night. You know, 
12, 13 year old boys and stuff like that and he would come and watch it, he'd stand there. He just had so much desire and wanted to learn. And remember there was no videos in those days, there was no video analysis. And he would go everywhere and drive, you know, thousands of miles um, just to see a, a highland league, even if it had no relevance to what um, he was trying to achieve at Aberdeen. Um, but I think the one thing about him was he, he, his man management was good because he just gave you know, so much belief, you know. And, and I, I just go back to, you know, when you look at the players he brought in, um, you know, Gordon Strachan from Dundee ends up at Manchester United, and Mark McGee, um, I, I don't even know where he, he was down south, a low um, team in England, he ends up at Hamburg, you know, Eric Black, youth player ends up in, in France. Um, and, and the list goes on, you know, and the guys like Willie Miller and Alton McLeish, you know, he brought Stuart McKinney in, who ends up at an international, Robert Connor. Um, you know, he just had an eye for players. Um, and I think the amazing thing for him is in the 20 or 30 years or 40 years he's been managing, he's built so many teams at Manchester United. He must have built about three or four teams and all to be successful. Um, and, you know, I think that's why he's got the success. But I just think his desire, his application, his hunger... Um, I think that's uh, the real reason and, and you always knew at some point he was going and I remember the the day that he actually went um, I remember the morning we all went into Petaudry after we knew the, the news before the night before he'd, he'd gone to Manchester United and in the place it was just like a, it was as if somebody had died it was just so dead it was almost like you know the heart of the club has just been taken out Absolutely and I can imagine so with such a, a, a commanding figure as Sir Alex and he put faith in you, as you've said, as a youth. And from there, at Aberdeen, you went on and had a good career. And I'm going to come to the when you won the League Cup against Rangers in 1989. What, what Describe the build-up to that final and what did it feel like winning a first major trophy in your career and for Aberdeen? I think, well, I mean, the previous year we went to the... We played in the final um, again against Rangers. Um, I think we lost 3-2 that... Um, that was my first cup final that I played in. I missed the year before um, when Peter Nicholas missed, a, missed the penalty kick. Um, you know, so the year before the first cup final, and it's probably the worst game I ever had for Aberdeen. Um, it was really disappointing. Didn't play well. So I was obviously um, desperate to do well in the next game, one two one. Um, but I think the build-up to the game, I was pretty nervous. I, don't, I never really got nervous before games, but I think the occasion and the, the media attention, but also the the fact that I didn't do so well, that was always in the back of my mind. And you're playing against the same team, same venue, same time of year. So I found that a little bit, um, you know, a little bit hard to deal with. You know, a few sleepless nights moving into it. Um, but I think one of the things that eased my um, in the morning of the game is that Alex Smith named Dean Jess in the team. Um, and you know, it was almost took a pressure off me that I'm not the youngest, he was the youngest player. Um, so that took the pressure off a little bit. But the, the feeling was amazing to win your first ever, you know, you know, major tournament. Plus, you know, against a, a, a club like Rangers, that the Sooners area had just, or uh, sorry, era, had just um, started. And, you know, Terry Butcher was in there, and Gary Stevens, Trevor Stevens, you know, Ali McCoist, and um, all the big guns were in there. So it was... Um, it was pretty special, obviously, for the, the winning goal. I had a long throw in that uh, I think it was flicked on by Charlie Nicholas and um, Paul Mason scored. So um, it was great. And I think that what I liked and the one thing I missed about uh, being at Rangers 
was the fact that the open top bus, you know, going down the main street and Union Street, um, that kind of thing, you know, special moments. Um, I was fortunate enough to do that twice. Um, but just to get your first um, medal in the bag, and, and at that point you don't know it might be your only medal ever. You just don't know. And um, but it was great. It was I think it was around about the time it was Willie Miller's last one of Willie Miller's last few games, last I think championship thing that he won. So um, you know, we're playing with guys like Alan McLeish, and, and they, they, they help you through the game and with experience because they've played in so many big games, and and they just take it in their stride, and you know. As I say, that Ian Jess playing really sort of took the spotlight off me, should I say. I was um, speaking yesterday to um, Darren Young, who ex-Aberdeen, and he said that Ian Jess was probably the best player he played with. Just how good was Ian Jess? I think, I think he was, I, I mean, I think when he, he came from a, a village um, just outside Aberdeen, and, you know, it's a, a bit of a local boy made good. And coming from a village... You know, you expect guys from Glasgow and the confidence to go in. But he came in and, and nothing faced him. And, you know, that that game in particular, I think it was maybe his first or second game for Aberdeen. And it was a bold statement. But, but the way he handled it, and he played that game, you know, when you look back in his career, probably like every game he played in his career, um, a lot of confidence. Not so much confidence, just quietly confident. He was a quiet kid. Um, but his ability was, was unbelievable. And um, I, I think... He, uh, maybe if he'd moved on a little bit earlier or something, he might have. Um, I know he ended up in England, but I think he could have been at a real top level club um, if he'd uh, maybe left earlier or maybe had a little bit more luck. But his ability was second to none. Obviously, we talked about the League Cup final win against Rangers, and incredibly, you and Aberdeen followed that up just a year later with the Scottish Cup win against Celtic in a penalty shootout. You took and scored a penalty in that game. How nerve-wracking is it taking a penalty on such an occasion? And did you prefer to win on penalties um, or normal time? No, do you know what? It's, it's weird. It's the same. It's the Ian Jess kind of thing all over again. Um, you know, it was probably the worst Scottish Cup final ever. Um, <laughs> nothing each against Celtic. and it looked, I mean, I think the teams could still be playing today and the one who had ever scored. And um, it was just, uh, you know, it was almost like a relief to get to penalty kicks. But obviously, once the first five came, the... Or your Charlie McLeish, your um, Jim Betts, and Alan McLeish take the penalty kicks. You then come down to the, you know, the other guys that are not used to taking penalty kicks, and I was one of them. But I noticed that um, what's his name, uh, Graham Watson. You know, a young lad, and there's Brian Arthur and these guys, and I'm thinking I have to take a penalty kick before um, Graham Watson. You know, I can't put him through that, even though I was still young myself. I think I was 21. Um, I, I just felt that I had to. <clears throat> take the penalty kick and I didn't even really think about it I remember walking up to the the, the goal it was the Celtic end and um, I actually walked up thinking myself I've got no idea what I'm doing here I've no idea where I was going to put a penalty kick because I think my last penalty kick was probably in primary school oh, so um, I, I step up and in the last minute I decide right, I'm going to hit it to the goalkeeper's right um, hard and low so I went up and, and I miss hit the ball and the ball went straight and um, just as well because Pat Bonner he, he died the way I was going to hit it so if, if I'd hit it through um, what would I say I, I don't think Aberdeen would have won the cup um, Celtic would have won it um, so as they say you're, you're better to be lucky than good at things <laughs> that, that is true in life isn't it um, what I was going to ask you was based on what you said earlier 
Um, obviously, <coughs> pardon me, um, when you win a cup at Aberdeen, you can get an open top bus parade, which players that have played for Celtic Rangers at times haven't had, even high profile ones, because that doesn't really happen in Glasgow. What's it like being on an open top bus celebrating with your fans <coughs> in your city? Yeah, no, it's great because, uh, I mean, particularly Aberdeen, they all come down Union Street. It's packed, you know, there's just thousands and thousands of people there. And, and then you stop, you go into Town Hall and you go on a balcony and um, and then you go back to Petosby. It's just a, it's a great feeling. Um, you know, and it, it's, it's it's really hard to describe. Um, but I think, like I've, I've said, I've mentioned a few times that in my career that <clears throat> I've been fortunate to win medals and and I don't think it's, until now you actually appreciate what you've achieved um, and maybe at times you took it for granted you didn't really soak it up as, as much as you'd like to um, but it was just a, a fantastic um, experience particularly the first one in the League Cup um, it was just great and just I just feel that um, <clears throat> you know not many people can do that and you look now I think since then I think it's maybe only happened once or twice at Aberdeen Obviously, as well, by the age of 22, you had won the League Cup and the Scottish Cup, and you moved to Rangers in 1991 for just under a million pounds. When did you first hear of their interest, and was anyone else in for you? Um, well, up until that season, there was a number of clubs um, before Liverpool. I know Alec Ferguson tried to take me to Manchester United. Um, Arsenal, George Green wanted me to go there. Um, there was a number of clubs um, at that point, but actually, believe it or not, when the time came um, when my contract I was up at, at Aberdeen, um, it was only Sheffield United, Aston Villa, and Rangers that were, uh, you know, a serious interest. Um, and probably, I probably knew about that interest about two months before that happened, um, and then I basically agreed to go to to Rangers probably a week or so before the the league decided the first last ever game for Rangers when. Aberdeen needed to go. Sorry, my last ever game for Aberdeen. Um, when we had to go to um, Ibrox, um, we just needed a draw to win the league. Obviously, we lost that day. Um, <clears throat> so it was a bit of a, a weird feeling, you know, knowing that going into the game I was going to be at Rangers the following season. And not that I, the performance was any different. Um, I only know how to play one way, and you know, I gave everything that everything I could that day, and obviously, it just wasn't enough. But um, that was the reason. That was sort of how it all came about. I met Walter Smith, and it all got agreed and signed, and 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 what have you. So, um, um, at that point, as I say, probably for the first time at that time, there was only about three clubs that had serious interest in me at the time. But the year before, you know, was you know when I was about eighteen, nineteen, there was a lot of clubs came in. Um, obviously, Aberdeen wouldn't let me go at the time. So, um, but I think at the same time, Aberdeen. Um, well, I'm not. I mean, obviously, I, I've got a bit of stick for for leaving Aberdeen to go to Rangers, but I think Aberdeen, um, you know, they were a selling club and um, they sort of hid behind a little bit of the, the the fact that I'd left. You know, I think they were quite happy to get the money. Um, you know, it's um, it's, it's a provincial club. It's, it's what they were, and um, and it was it was a hard decision to leave Aberdeen because obviously I grew up and. Aberdeen supported as a kid and um, my family supported them and grew up there, born there, I used to watch them. So it was a, a hard one in particular to go to Rangers, but, um, you know, I think within a few days I knew it was the, the right thing. 
How does it feel um, when you're actually signing for a club the size of Rangers? Are you absolutely buzzing, your family buzzing, or is it mixed emotions because, as you've said, you left your boyhood club for another club? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> when, I, when I was signing and obviously all the, the newspapers and the media stuff, stuff came about, um, it wasn't really till then until I really realised what a big club Rangers were. Um, and, and, and when you sign for Rangers, it does change your life, it changes your way of thinking. Um, um, it, it was just the same when I, when I left Rangers to go to Leeds United, it was like, you know, you always think all oh, the grass is greener, but I, I knew after two weeks when I left Rangers, I'd made a, the wrong decision uh, to leave. Um, and that's just what the club does to you. Um, you know, even though, you know, I'm, I'm 51 now, um, you know, I still get invited to go to Rangers things and it's great. Um, I'm still well-remembered and well-received. Um, but it's just that to go to a big club and, and knowing that you were going to be, you know, I, I remember the, the day I walked into Ibrox to rest room. Um, you know, this is how I, you know how big the club is. You walk in and there's a commissioner there standing. The commissioner, he welcomes you in. You've got to wear a call and tie. He passes you on to Jimmy Bell, the kit man. He takes it here. Um, and the dressing room, and, and you walk in there, and there's, you know, there's a Terry Harlick, there's Richard Goff, um, you know, Alexis Mikhailovchenko, Ian Ferguson, Alan McCoy, Mark Haitley, Mo Johnson, Mark Walters. You know, you, you look through all the, the superstars that are there. And then Jimmy Bell takes me into the, the, to where I'm going to sit, and he says, this is your, where you're going to get changed here. It's number six. He says, um, you've got big shoes to fill. That's Terry Butcher's number. And I was thinking, oh my God, a bit of pressure there. <laughs> um, but then, to be fair, when I left six years later, Jimmy Bell was gracious enough to say, you know, he says, I remember telling you it's Terry Butcher's number, and he says, you certainly filled these shoes. So that meant a lot to me. Absolutely, it would, and, and such a compliment to receive. Um, what was it like on a weekly basis playing at Ibrox in front of such a big crowd and such a passionate crowd? Um, <clears throat> well, what I remember the first game I was playing St Johnston at home I just felt the pitch was huge I remember I got interviewed after the game and asked how I felt and I just said I didn't realise how, how big Ibrox was but I think it's just the fact that there's so many people watching you know, obviously it's not much difference in size all the parks throughout the world but I just felt it was massive at that point and um, uh, but I, I think in the time at Rangers I was very well received at, at Rangers and I, I never had a bad moment, you know, I never got booed or anything. Um, and I think it was down to the way I played. I, I worked hard and I tried to get forward and I gave everything I could. Um, <clears throat> but it was just that you get used to it, you know, and I actually got to a point where, you know, you'd, you'd prefer to play home games just because of the support and you hear about the 12th man and all that kind of stuff. And it was just a, a great experience going down that tunnel. Um, but I always knew that... Um, after a couple of seasons, once the foreign rule uh, disappeared, um, that I always knew that each game could be my last because at that point they could go and buy and spend money and, and bring in any player they wanted. Obviously, in your time at Rangers, you've talked about you played with some incredible players there. Two I want to touch on in particular. I want to know um, what were Ali McCoyst and Paul Gascoigne like, both as players on the pitch, but also what were they like in the dressing room yeah. on a daily basis? Yeah, well, I think Ali McCoy on, on the field was, um, you know, I think it was a, I, think, I, I remember an article, I, I even did an article, I got interviewed after a game, and, and it was, you know, Ali McCoy could 
fall in a barrel of shite and come out smelling the roses. Um, <laughs> because he, I mean, he was just, I'm not saying he was lucky, but he was just in the right place at the right time. You know, he'd miss hit someone that would go in the net. Um, you know, and, and I think, I don't think he, I know everybody said he scores a lot of goals and it was a Rangers team, but I don't think that even during the Rangers rough patches there were, he was scoring goals. I don't think he gets the, the credit he deserves for the, the amount of goals that he scored. Um, but off the pitch, he was, you know, laugh a minute. He would, um, you know, he'd be the, the jokers in the pack. I would sit in that corner. I was pretty quiet. I wouldn't say too much. Um, but he was, you know, non-stop. Him, Ian Durant, Ian Ferguson would all really um, get, what would I say, were really sort of stuck, um, you know, making everybody laugh and winding people up and everything. So it's good. Um, to be a part of it and you know obviously we had some nights out as well um, you know the old saying team that drinks together wins together so and it was a very social team even though I was one of the quiet ones um, Gaza um, came in and he was actually you know he's larger than life but he's still a bit apprehensive about going to the, the Rangers games uh, I mean coming to the Rangers dressing room with all the players and that's the one thing about the Rangers dressing room and no one was bigger than anybody else, even though there was massive personalities and, you know, massive, like, obviously, when Lou Drops and Gascoigne's world-class players, no one was any better than anybody else, which I think is, was, was great uh, to the dressing room. Um, you know, Gaza, I remember one one time Gaza comes in for training and he'd obviously had his teeth done. So <laughs> he came in and, you know, ends up looking like Shergar, big, massive teeth, big... <laughs> Um, veneers on so I think Walter Smith told him to take the day off training and go and take a couple of inches off his teeth because everybody was just taking the piss out of him so it was uh, it was never never a dull moment there that's for sure um, Obviously you mentioned that McCoyst and Gaza were um, big jokers in the dressing room um, were you ever on the receiving end of any of their jokes and pranks? No fortunately enough I was, I was quiet enough that I, I wasn't um, on the end of anything um, but I've seen a few um, obviously, everybody's heard the one about Gordon Jury and the fish and, yeah. <laughs> um, in his car. Um, just so many, so many things that that happened um, there. And I, and I think, you know, because it was such a happy dressing room. Um, even if we had a bad result, which wasn't very often, um, you come in the Monday morning and it was still laughs and jokes, and everybody knew that, you know, even to a wee bad spell, and um, we'd all come out the other side and. It's just the togetherness and the and the team spirit, and that's something that I've tried to put into every team that I've coached um, over the years, and I think that's the most important thing because I don't think the early part of the time at Rangers it was particularly the not, it's probably not the greatest Rangers team as an ability, but I think it was just had a team that had the the fight and had everybody's back, and the amount of times we went a goal down, two goals down, there was no panic when you would come back and win games, and it's just the belief in. Um, the desire and the workmanship of the whole team. And, you know, when you look at the players on the park, you had guys like um, Stuart McCall, Ian Ferguson, um, Richard Goff, Ali McCoy, guys who would just give anything uh, to win a game and just wear that jersey. And, and I think it rubbed off on everybody. Obviously, in your time at Rangers, you worked under Walter Smith. What was he like as a person and as a coach? <laughs> Walter was, was I, I think his man management probably you know up there with Alec Ferguson. Um, obviously Alec Ferguson, he was younger when he when I worked under him. Um, but Walter Smith, I think he had a great knack of keeping players happy that weren't in the team. Um, you know, with at one point with guys like Peter Van Bossen, Oleg Selenko, big names, 
but they were happy enough. Um, it just he, he created a, a real happy environment. But I think what he did do was it's obviously stressful being a, a the manager of Rangers, but he managed to keep it all away from the players. I remember, um, I think in one week we got not AK Athens knocked us out of the the, the Champions League or the, or the European Cup at that point. Um, <clears throat> we lost to Falkirk in the Cup, we lost to Celtic in the first Old Firm game, and there was a lot of pressure with Walter Smith. And, and the one thing was, he's the only manager that I've never seen show like no pressure at all. Kept away from the players, he was the same person, win, lose, or draw. And that must have been tough, um, you know, being in Glasgow and being the manager of Rangers at a time like that. And he just shielded everything from the players and, and looked after the players. And, and the one thing I remember about him is, you know, um, if we were playing Aberdeen at Petodre, he would call, he would basically say to me on Thursday, look, get yourself up to Aberdeen, I'll see you at a hotel on Friday night. Um, and, you know, he just trusted me to do something on my own. Um, and then after the game, if we win, he'd say, right, OK, take a few days off, we'll see you Wednesday. Um, he didn't, he, I didn't even ask, he would he would just come and tell me, you know, just do that. And, and it was great. And but I do remember... Um, one thing he said to me, it was around about the time when I, when I signed, maybe in the first few weeks, he says to me, he says, you look after me and I'll look after you. And, um, and I think that's, you know, the, the beauty of the guy is that you keep you look after him, you run through a bit wall for him and he'll, he'll look after you. Could you tell, working with him, that he was going to go on to become one of the best managers that Scotland and Rangers have ever seen? <clears throat> no, I, I think, I think he, as I say, man management and even even the Rangers at that time, there's a bit of money, it's still a lot of pressure. You know, I remember the Celtic games when Celtic at times played us off the park and somehow we managed to beat them where we grind out results. Um but I but I think I think the good thing about him is, you know, he was assistant to Dungeon United and assistant to Graham Sooners. And there's always a question mark when assistants step up. Um but, you know, he's, he's he just had that aura about him. He got a bit of stature when he walked in the room, it was like here's the gaffers here. Um, so it, he, as I say, he's still you probably see all the interviews with all the ex-players. He's still known as the gaffer. Absolutely. Then you mentioned the Celtic games there. I was going to come on to them next. What was it like to play against Celtic at Ibrox and and Celtic Park and and finals? What what was it like to play <laughs> yeah. in an old firm game? Yeah, well, I think yeah, I think um, the one thing I remembered about um, when you play for the Angels, the first twenty minutes you can't hear anybody, um, but the you know, when you're playing an old firm game at Parkhead, particularly Parkhead in those days, I don't know why, but you couldn't hear anything for the whole game. You're almost on your own. You know, other games after 20 minutes, you can shout to your teammates, you can hear each other um, and help each other, but you're on your own. You know, Goffey could be shouting to me or John Brown, tell me there's a man behind me or, or what have you. And you still do the same shout, but you can't hear anything. And you're almost, you're on, as I say, you're on your own and um, you've got to have your wits about you. Um, but, what I, what I did like about, you know, the old firm, in those days, you know, when you're up against a Dick Canyon or a Joe Miller or something like that, you can, you know, in the first 10 minutes, you can go and have a, a wee go at them, a wee, a little battle with them, try and make them know that you're the boss, and you'd get away with it. Obviously, those days, it doesn't happen. You know, so sometimes, the first 10 minutes of an old firm game, it was a, a free-for-all. The most you're going to get is a, a yellow card. Um, so I, I, I did. I, I enjoyed those games and, you know, what I liked about them, I would say the majority of the games we played against Celtic um, in my time, Celtic probably were a better team. And as I say, somehow 
you know, it might have came off Trevor Stevens' backside or Alan McCoy's back, Alan McCoy's head, I don't know, but somehow we'd always manage to get the results and, and I think that made it more the more enjoyable at the time. Looking back on your time at Rangers, you won six league titles, three Scottish Cups and three League Cups. How would you sum up your time at Rangers and was it just one of the best times of your life? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's the most successful time and, and like I said, I don't want to think I appreciate it until now, you know, what was achieved and, you know, how fortunate I was to be in such a, a great Rangers team. Um, but, you know, it's, yeah, I just wish, you know, you could relive it again, you know, the, the, you know, the atmosphere in the dressing room, the feeling when you won things. Um, but it got to a point at Rangers where, because we were so successful, you won the league, you won a trophy, it was more relief than anything um, because you're almost expected to win all these trophies and what have you. And, you know, when you win the treble, it's great. And that season in particular was, you know, a good season for me in 92-93. The fact that um, <clears throat> Aberdeen had such a good season, they could probably have won the treble any other year. And Willie Miller was the manager. And I just remember the times that Willie Miller used to give me so much abuse when I was at Aberdeen. Um, when I was playing, I was 17, he was and he's probably late, mid-30s at that point. And every Willie Miller mistake was pointed at me. Um, and, the, you know, you shout at me and I was so young, I wouldn't say anything. And, you know, um, we ended up winning the treble in, in the last game. Well, when we, we clinched the treble, we, it was Aberdeen at Parkhead because Hamden was getting done, done up. Um, and we won um, and it was just you know when you, you, you walk past the Willie Miller and obviously it's your old team and you managed to basically beat them in the League Cup Scottish Cup and in the league it made a lot of um, it, it was good you know so but that made it more pleasing for me you know against your old team you clinch your treble at Parkhead um, and you think within the home dressing at that time so it doesn't get much better than that Well that's actually an interesting one What was it like to win a trophy at Celtic Park As an Angels player and as a club Was it absolutely surreal? No it was great as I say I'm playing against Aberdeen my old club And and that was the one thing When I played against Aberdeen I I knew I had to be at my best And um, I knew that I couldn't let My old club get one one over me And and that was It was an incredible atmosphere But I do still feel that um, It's better at Hamden You know it's a national stadium And um, obviously Parkhead or wasn't then it wasn't like what it is now so um, you're a little bit more further away from the the supporters but it was just that I mean to win a treble at any point um, was, was fantastic but to do a Parkhead special but I do feel that you know cup finals are, are better at Hamden You then left Rangers for Leeds and you were managed by fellow Scott George Graham what was he like and what was Leeds like as a club and a city? Yeah, I mentioned earlier that you know as soon as I left Rangers, I knew it was a, a mistake. Um, you know, um, we always think the grass is green on the other side. Um, unfortunately, you know, injuries sort of killed my career after probably the first season. Um, you know, the Leeds are a historic um, club, um, very well-known club, and then it was a it was a nice family club. Um, I, I did enjoy my time there, to be honest, as well. Um, George Graham was good. George Graham signed me when he was at Arsenal. Um, I think it was Aberdeen at the time. Um, <clears throat> but you know, when I, when I when I signed, you know, he sold me the um, the club overlapped fullback and, and what have you. But quickly, as time went on, I was more a, a defensive uh, and left back, um, which obviously first and foremost you got to defend. But I felt um, I was letting the supporters down and myself. 
Um, so I found it difficult to adjust after a good start. Um, you know, we 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 I think we do do with Arsenal at home. Uh, beat Sheffield United, um, beat Newcastle, beat Manchester United at home. So um, all those were great experiences. But, you know, it's a, it's a big club, but nothing, not the size, anything the size of um, of Rangers. And, and you quickly realise that um, pretty quick. Obviously, you mentioned that George Graham changed your game from an attacking overlapping fullback to um, a more defensive one. Just how thorough was George Graham at drilling and coaching his defence? Because he's notorious from his time at Arsenal as 1-0 to the Arsenal. Was he similar with Leeds? Yeah, yeah. I think um, <clears throat> that's, that's, I'll tell you that's the one thing about George Graham. That if I owned a club or I was, you know, had an investment in a club and I was a club struggling at the bottom of the league, I guarantee you George Graham would get get you out of it. You know, every, every training session was defence-orientated. Um, you know, when you know, I think at that point we're lucky because, um, well, you look at Arsenal, they'd Ian Wright, you know, they would defend, 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 one chance, Ian Wright scores. Um, at Leeds, it was the same. We had Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank at the time, um, obviously with Rod Wallace as well. But Hasselbank would, you know, score, you know, a number of goals, important goals. And, and I think that first season, I think we finished sixth in the league. Um, but a lot of this stuff was defence orientated and. Uh, to be honest, I've taken a bit of it on to my, my coaching career as well. Um, you know, it's and it was the first time that I've come across that as a player. Um, normally at Aberdeen, I was going forward all the time. Rangers were going forward all the time as well. So, um, you know, just as I say, everyone was defence based, and um, we got results. You mentioned there Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. How good was he as a player and a finisher? And could you see him going on to the great career that he had? Yeah, um, well, I mean, he came in, um, he actually, I think George Graham went to sign Bruno Ribeiro. Um, I think he was playing for Vittoria set the ball. And he saw they were playing against Boa Vista and that's where Jimmy was. And obviously Jimmy must have done well that game, signed him for next to nothing. Um, <clears throat> but he was just a great finisher. The way he could, the power he had on a side foot finish was um, was incredible. Um, but the one thing I liked about him, he had no self-doubt. Um, there was no um, he knew even if he went a couple of games without scoring there was no lack of confidence he was so confident um, probably one of the best likers that I've, I've, I've you know, played with and I remember um, <clears throat> he left and went to Atletico Madrid and he was the top goal scorer in Spain and I think Atletico Madrid got relegated that year so it shows you how many you know how what a great finish he was and as I say the one thing I liked about it was his, his confidence he never lacked confidence in terms of that time at Leeds, who were the big personalities in the dressing room? And you played alongside fellow Scots, Derek Lilly and David Hopkin. Were you guys a close-knit group? Yeah, yeah well, when we signed, um, <clears throat> we all stayed in the same hotel, David Hopkin, Derek Lilly, myself. Alfie Harland was there as well. And Jimmy Floyd Hasselbein, Bruno Ribeiro, we all sort of signed at the same time, stayed in the same hotel together. Um, Jimmy was a, a great personality, Um more so just his sense and everything, you know, he's, I think he bought, he bought this car, um, it was a BMW 650 or something, and by the time he got back to the hotel, I think he'd been flashed three times in on his speed camera, um, <laughs> so he's, he was larger than life, um, Lee Sharp was there at times, and Gary Kelly, they were probably the, they were up there with Alan McCoyst and, and Ian Gerant, those two, they, you know, took the mickey out of everything, and I mean, there was never a dull moment there as well. But at that point, we had it was Lee Sharp was there, Thomas Brolin was there, Carlton Palmer, 
Nigel Martin, um, obviously Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. Um, <clears throat> so we'd a, a fair bit of... Ian Rush was there as well, believe it or not. He was still there. Um, so there's a lot of big names there when I first went. And um, as I say, it was, it was obviously... I'm not saying it's a letdown from, from Rangers, but you do feel the it's not such a big club, even though it is in terms of um, um, in England. But um, no, I, I I did enjoy it. I mean, you mentioned before about <clears throat> like living in Leeds itself. So we ended up, I think I stopped after about two, three years. I couldn't play. I think we stayed another three years in, in Leeds. So we, we loved the city. We still got a lot of friends there. And, um, you know, when we came back from the US, that was one of the places we actually thought about Settling down. Um, obviously, um, you mentioned there that there was very lively characters in the dressing room. What was the sort of best pranks and things you saw in the dressing room while we were at, you were at Leeds? Um, no, it was just things like, I mean, it wasn't quite like the Rangers, but there was things like, um, you know, letting tyres down in the car park. And, you know, there was uh, Gary Kelly has got the best impersonation of George Graham I've ever heard. <laughs> um, and there was one time that he got caught, so that didn't go down too well with George Graham. Um, but, you know, George was, the, the funny thing about George Graham was, you know, George would, he was like perfect, you know, obviously his nickname as a player was Gorgeous George, um, but what would happen at training, maybe, I remember one time we did a free kick, and me and Gary Kelly were over the ball, and <clears throat> I was hitting it miles over the bar, so was he. And then George Graham showed up with a, a pair of brogues on, pair of dress trousers, Pringle jersey and a, and a shirt, and um, says, this is how you do it, and he put it right in the top corner, wow. with his right foot and his left foot, and he says, and that's my swinger, um, <laughs> just, just little things like that, it, it was like immaculate, whatever he did, no warm-up, even with dress clothes on, he would go and do it better than any other player could do it, um, as I say, when I, when I got injured, to be fair to him, he did look after me a lot, he got me involved in things, and it was just a... It was hard to play for him at times because he changed my game a little bit and at 27 it's very difficult to, to change. In your time at Leeds, the club finished fourth in the Premier League um, and obviously they were very ambitious in the 90s and early 2000s. When you were at the club, was the aim to win the league and challenge for the league? Yeah, I mean, I think after George Graham left, um, David O'Leary took over with Eddie Gray and they put in a lot of young players, Harry Kuehl, Alan Smith, Jonathan Woodgate, Paul Robinson... Um, Stephen McPhail um, so the, the list goes on um, and I, I think it was a good um, partnership with um, Eddie Gray and, and, and David O'Leary um, and there, there was high ambitions I mean the, you know, the, at one point they brought Ferdinand, they brought David Batty back um, bought Mark Viduca so they had um, big ambitions um, and it's just unfortunate the way it all ended up um, I think it was something to do with they were sort of guaranteed and qualifying for the, the Champions League and had a chance of winning the league and they ended up outside the Champions League places and didn't even win the win the league. So I think that was a, a bit beginning of a downfall for them. Maybe they overinvested, I don't know. But the ambition was definitely there and being at, at the club at that point was, was good. You know, you, you were go I was injured at the time, you're going to watch them play Real Madrid and Barcelona. <laughs> Um, but they're actually beating them comfortably so it was, it was it was a great atmosphere at Ellen's Road in those nights What was Rio Ferdinand like at that time? Obviously he was up and coming um, could you tell right away he was going to be a world class player? Yeah well I mean he was obviously just they paid about, at that point about 6 million from um, West Ham so he was already 
a player there, but you just knew the the stature and um, just the way he sort of, he almost he was one of the the first centre backs that just you know was calm on the ball and you know always looked like he had ten minutes on the ball before he played the ball or he could take ten minutes. He's just a you know obviously a world class player and um, you know there was a lot of eyebrows raised that at that point that Leeds paid so much money for him and um, but they obviously um, made money out of him. Obviously, as well, you talked about the spell at Leeds being quite injury hit for you, which was frustrating. How hard is it dealing with injuries, both mentally and physically? <clears throat> it was hard. I mean, I think when I first went to Leeds, my we realised that I had a big major problem with my um, knee and with no ACL, no crucial ligament. And um, when I signed for Leeds, there was a, a medical, and and only the fact that George Graham was going on holiday that night. Um, I don't think the deal would have been completed. Um, but I think after that, I, I knew I had an issue. Even though I played five years without a, an ACL, without knowing, um, I developed a limp um, as soon as I came out of the MRI unit. And um, so we've... Um, yeah, so I, I came out of the MRI unit and um, started to limp. And then soon after that... Um, <clears throat> For some reason, I knew I had an issue with my knee, and I remember we played against Leicester. I came up for a header, came down, and my knee sort of gave way, and there was so much damage inside my knee um, that I knew that I was never, ever going to be the same. I mean, we made a comeback just at the end of that season, played a couple of games. Uh, I think it was against Coventry and Manchester United, I think it was. Um, but I knew I, I wasn't the same, and, and after that, it was a year getting the reconstruction, then when I came back, it was groins, it was hamstrings, everything else was beginning to go. Um, until a surgeon, you know, basically says to me, you know, you can't play that level anymore. And, and it was a bit of a relief when he told me that because I was just uh, beating myself up for two, two and a half years, trying to get fit, playing in the reserve game. Um, I almost went on loan to Barnsley. I almost went back to Aberdeen and Dundee. Um, <clears throat> but I just knew that if I was to move to another club, I'd just be cheating them. So um, when the, I was almost a bit like a horse just waiting to get shot. And um, obviously the, the surgeon fired the bullets. Um, after the spell, at least as we said, the difficulty with injuries, and thanks for talking about those, you returned to Scotland with Montrose for a brief spell as a player before retiring to become a manager. As a manager, you um, had short spells at Montrose and Elgin. Um what I want to know is, what did you learn from those spells and did they give you the real hunger to, to manage long-term? Yeah, I think I think in the I, I went back as a player assistant. I actually, before that, I was still at Leeds. I played some charity games and I felt I could play, so I went back to try and play, but after nine games, I started my Achilles tendon and I knew that was sort of it. Um, and then I got an opportunity to go to, to Elgin and um, I think the hardest part for Elgin was that obviously it's part time where it's located. You know, we play some Aberdeen, Inverness, Dundee, Glasgow, um, and we never train together as a team um, on the two nights a week. So I found that very difficult. And I, I think I've been coming from a pretty high level um, to a sort of low, no disrespect to players, but, you know, I, I was signing players and I thought he's a great player, does we really well. Um, maybe 20 minutes into a game, it's nothing each, and then five minutes later, two nothing down because the players just aren't consistent enough. They make more mistakes at that level. Um, so I found that part difficult, but more the, the location, the geography. 
Um, so eventually we, we tried to make them full-time. We had a skill seekers programme that worked with guys like Ian Figers and um, Darren Kelly and these guys who wanted better things. So um, that was hard. Um, but it, was, it was a good learning experience because it's helped me a lot um, as we've gone on because I think you know coming to a place like the Al Kashmir, there's a lot of issues day to day and then I thought it was bad at Elgin but um, Elgin was a breeze compared to you. Before we go on to talk about your time, brief stint in America and obviously Kashmir, what was it, you'd got three Scotland caps during your career and I'm interested to know as a fan, what's it like standing on that pitch hearing the national anthem blare out? <clears throat> yeah, it's, it, I mean obviously as a, as a kid you dream of playing for Scotland but to be honest it was a, a bit of a letdown having played for Rangers, you know every Rangers game is a big game, full house. Um, I remember my first game was at Hamden against Northern Ireland and um, I was excited but there was a bit of a, a letdown really you know it wasn't didn't feel as special as just playing for Rangers I know that maybe sounds a bit um, big headed or whatever but it's just how I felt you know and um, it was weird I think even then I knew that I wasn't going to have the greatest international career for some reason um, you know I, I think I, I played after that I played two more games Switzerland and, and the world and I think it was European Championship qualifiers and then Holland at Hamden. Um, <clears throat> but I didn't particularly enjoy playing for Scotland that much. Um, you know, and at that point as well, um, you know, a lot of people say that I criticise Craig Brown and Andy Roxburgh, but, you know, they were very good to me as a, a youth player under 21s. But I felt at that point, you know, there was guys like Morris Malpass there, Tom Boy, Tosh McKinley came in. So he'd, he'd been a lot of options to play you know, left-backs, and I always felt that if those guys were injured, I'd have a chance, um, but they were very, very consistent, so it didn't end up too great for me at the international level. Um, I'm interested to know, and you might not want to answer, and that's fine, but you got three Scotland caps. Do you personally believe with the career you had and the trophies you won, you deserved a lot more? Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think um, I was maybe a little bit unfortunate either that there were, you know, good you know, left backs and, and I don't think until you know obviously the Tierney and, and the Robertson in Scotland now um, you know I think the level was pretty good then there hasn't been that sort of competition since um, but I, I feel um, yeah I was disappointed but at the same time um, I wouldn't change anything because I felt my time at Rangers was exceptional and, and I always had you know a bit of self-doubt about myself as a player and, and even just to have the achievement at Rangers, you know, I certainly wouldn't swap what I achieved at Rangers for more Scotland Cups. After um, your managerial stints with um, Elgin and Montrose, you had a few years out of the game before moving to America. How did the move to America come about for you and your family and what was it like being involved in American sport and football um, with Phoenix FC? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean obviously, uh, when, I, when I moved to I was in I was at Montrose at the time and uh, I sort of left. Um, I wasn't enjoying it, um, and then I got the opportunity to. It was actually through a friend of Ali Maxwell's. Turns out to be a friend of Bobby Clark. Um, it was um, just an opportunity to go coach three youth teams in America and Phoenix, nice part of the world. We decided, oh, let's have a go at it, and we're there for ten years. But within probably a year, eighteen months, I was running the whole club. Um, you know, and there was at that point there's about five hundred kids, boys and girls, and it grew to about three and a half thousand boys and girls. <clears throat> so you know, uh, made 
made the club a lot bigger. Um, I was, you know, I was the executive director. I was coaching teams. I was basically doing it, paying wages. I was, you know, doing everything. And, and eventually, it took its toll a little bit. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, I was part of the ones that started Phoenix FC Wolves, who are now Phoenix Rising, where Didi Drogba is. Um, so, you know, we started the club, and it was exciting. You know, our first game sold out at 5,000. Um, but the thing is, in America, and particularly in Phoenix, it's, unless it's the MLS, um, you know, the one thing that I found difficult in America when it went to the Phoenix FC, even though it's a USL, it's still a full-time club. Um, it's professional, but they'll call it semi-pro or um, minor league <clears throat> because it's not um, MLS. So I think that was a disappointing thing. And, and I think um, that really sort of put um, a bit of a downward spiral to the whole thing that no one classed it as professional, even though it was, you know, we trained every day. And um, it's a, I think it was a seven or eight month season. So, um, and, it, and it was difficult because I had to start a club from scratch. I brought over Scott Morrison, who'd been at Aberdeen in Ross County, Darren Mackey, who'd been at Aberdeen, and um, Anthony Obadai, who played for Ajax. So, you know, we, we, we built a decent enough team, and, but unfortunately the club ran out of money and it ended up a, a bit of a disaster. I'm interested to also know, obviously, you've lived in Aberdeen, Glasgow and Leeds. What's life in America like in Phoenix compared to life in the UK? What's the similarities and the big differences? Um, well, I think in Phoenix, it's almost like being in holiday all the time because it never drops below 70 degrees. It gets to about 120 degrees. Um, you know, you can have a barbecue any day of the year. You know, 11 months out of the year, you're wearing shorts and T-shirts. Um, it's just it's like being a holiday all the time. Um, but I think in in America, you know, we did enjoy it. It's the longest we've been there as a family. Ten years, my kids spent most of our life in America. Um, but I feel um, in America, you know, I started off coaching three teams. Then I was the director of coaching for boys, coaching three teams. Then the girls, and overall director of coaching. Then exactly, you end up living in a great part of the world. But all you do is work. You know, I was in the office at 8 o'clock in the morning and by the time I came home from training, it was 10.30 at night and that's every day of the week. Um, weekends, it might sound bad, but you're going to Las Vegas for the weekend, Florida for the weekend, California to coach games, but you're on the fields at 8 in the morning till 6 or 7 at night. So it's constant all the time. And, and I think I got to a point where I'm in a great part of the world, but I'm not enjoying it. In 2017, you moved to Real Kashmir. Obviously, with the club being in India, yeah. um, it's, it's for someone from Scotland to go there was quite an interesting move. Um, for me as a football fan to, to, to look at and take an interest in and for the wider Scottish media, how did that move to India and Real Kashmir come about? Um, well, I was, as I say, I was getting a bit fed up in America. And, I mean, I don't get me wrong, I enjoy work. And, um, I've got to be focused and into it, but it was just, it was like, 24-7, it was, it was hard going. Um, you know, you're doing emails in your bed at night, emails first thing in the morning, because you just got no time to do emails and work and, and what have you. Um, so at that point, I got an offer to go to China, I got an offer to go to Uganda, and then Kashmir, um, obviously in India. And for some reason, I just took a fancy to come into Kashmir. I did absolutely no research <laughs> on Kashmir. I didn't even know it was a war zone. I thought, I thought everywhere in India was hot and I soon realised when I landed in Kashmir two days later there was about two foot of snow. Um, 
and it's only I think it's the only place in India that's got a winter, you know, four seasons, and it's harsh winters. Um, so I just and I, and I do think if I'd actually did a bit of research, I probably would never have come here. Um, I'd no idea about Indian football. Um, when I first came, <clears throat> there was no um, internet was off, uh, power cuts virtually all the time. Couldn't communicate home. Um, the, the, the team had no training kits. They took their own ball to training. There was no dressing rooms. Um, even though they classed it as a professional club, it was uh, hard to believe it was a professional club at that point. Obviously, you've talked about Kashmir there, which, as widely reported in the media, is one of the most dangerous places in the world and as a war zone. What's life like there on a daily basis and have you ever feared for your own safety? No, I've been asked that a lot and I've never once... I mean, believe it or not, where we are, it's probably the safest place in the world. Um where we are, you know, we're, we're in a hotel, um, it's, obviously there's a lot of um, security around it, um, but I can walk down the main street, um, I think if there's any issues, um, we always know because the internet gets shut down, and um, there's a lockdown, so basically all the shops are closed, so you stay indoors for a day or so, um, and then, then you're free to go, but I can go down and, you know, buy milkshakes and coffee down the main street, and have no issue at all. You know, obviously I look a lot different than anybody else. Um, but I think as the club's grown, um, you know, the, I mean, obviously the club was nothing. It's only been going three years, and now suddenly we're in one of the top leagues in India, and we're on TV. We're a bit of a sort of well-known brand, even throughout the world. Um, it's hard to believe that it's, it came that way. Um, and now, you know, before I'd walked down the street, and now people will actually talk to you, and they know who you are, and know who the players are. We've got, you know, some of the players are cult figures now. Um, it's just, it's amazing how it's, 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 uh, you know, gone. Just how far it's gone. But, you know, as far as the safety part goes, you know, I, I would never have um, lasted as long if there was any fear for the safety. I wouldn't have taken Mason the son, and my wife wouldn't have come over. You know, my whole family's been over. So, um, it's. It, it, you know, I think it's like everywhere else. If you go, if you go to the wrong areas, you're going to be in trouble. Um, yeah. But you know, you obviously know where you go, and if there is any issues, you're always well away from it. Obviously, you talked about the club was only formed a few years ago, and in that time, you've completely rebuilt the club. You won promotion from the I League Second Division to the top division in India, um, which was a great achievement, obviously for yourself and for the club. I'm just interested to know what's the standard of football like, and what's the standard of the Real Kashmir players you've got like, and how have you improved the club? How have you improved the club from the top yeah, to the bottom? I think I think at the start, <clears throat> um, I League Two, you're only allowed two foreign players, so I brought in a guy Loveday from Nigeria and um, Big Bernard from um, he's from Ivory Coast, um, and we had the, probably the lowest budget in League Two, and um, there's obviously a league season and playoffs. Um, so we, we won the league and then we won the playoffs and it was against all odds because we walked went into the, the league thinking nothing of it. You know, we never lost a game. Um, so that was, you know, a great achievement in itself. And then we obviously went to the I-League and you allowed six foreigners, you can play five. Um, I brought in Mason, my son, Loveday is still here. I brought in a, a six foot seven striker, Crizzle, um, who is, you know, a fantastic player. Um, and then a couple of guys, as uh, I'm being international, Aaron Katebi, and then we brought in who's on Armand Bazi from Ivory Coast. So you know, it's a, a lot of African players there. And um, but the, the I think 
centre level, you know, obviously we've now brought in Callum Higginbottom, who's at Dunfermline and Kilmarnock and Partick. So um, the standards pretty good. I would say it's probably, you know, the middle of the, the Premiership in Scotland. And I say that because, um, you know, we've got African players that are that couldn't get visas in in Europe. So there's there's thousands and thousands of players in Africa. Um, that would, I mean, probably the most of it would walk into any team in Scotland. Um, the the African players that we've got here, so I think that's the reason that the, the level's good. Because as I say, these guys would never get visas anywhere else. So, um, but you know, we the the season last year was a, a good season. You know, we didn't know anything much about the league, or even though we'd watched it, we didn't. It's always the same. You go into the league and first season is the team good enough. You know, my main aim was to avoid relegation, and we um, we finished third, which was was pretty amazing. And and again, you know, we I think we lost three games all season, and we never lost an away game. So even now, in our third season, we've never lost away from home in the league. So that's a, a fair achievement. We've only lost four games in total, or I don't know, is it four? Four league games um, in in what is now our third season. That's incredible, and. Such a great achievement and I'm interested to actually know as well. Obviously you won the I League second division and obviously you've won trophies in, in Scotland and the celebrations that come with them. How did the Indian fans and mm. everyone at the club react to winning a trophy? Well, the, the, the funny part is um, because we're in a, a obviously the, the clubs are in a Muslim state so obviously alcohol's um, forbidden. So it was funny when we actually won League 2 um, all the players were actually in Bangalore when we, we won it and the owner came in and got this big hall, big banquet hall, lots of alcohol, everything. And um, everybody was home in their bed by nine o'clock because <laughs> nobody drank. So it was a bit of a damp squib um, you know, as far as that goes. Um, and But it's, it's just it's just culture, you know, you just got to fit into to how everything is here and um, it was it was amazing, but I, I feel what I've achieved here is up there with what you know I achieved in the playing career, and I think it's even more satisfying where the club was. You know, there was no dressing rooms, no floodlights, no training kit, nothing. Now we've got, you know, we've got proper dressing rooms, there's floodlights. Um, you know, we were talking about League Two; we'd get 300 people at the games because no one basically knew we existed because it was a new club with no supporters. Um, and now last season we were getting over 20,000 at games, um, even though it held 15,000. Um, and because of all the, you know, the issues and that have been going on at the moment, um, you know, there's been a shutdown and there's been lack of internet. Internet's been off for, I think, about six months, um, up until around about now. Um, and, and but what they wanted is they didn't want any crowds. So we played our first home game about two weeks ago and um, they only, we only sold they only going to sell what two and a half thousand tickets but it ends up with four and a half thousand at the game um, and then this past game which was a couple of days ago and there was um, end up being I was only allowed 11,000 in and there was 5,000 outside couldn't get in and so they're just gradually building it up that I think if they could, if they let everybody in, there'd be about twenty thousand there. I mean, like it was last season. And the passion, it's you know, I've been I've been to places in America and other parts of India, and it's all animated. There's no real passion, but the passion that the Kashmiris have got towards their teams and incredible. It's, it's almost like an old firm game every game. 
that's incredible. And the atmosphere, as I say, as, as, as you know, from being in Scotland, being in India and being in America, you, you've seen, you've sampled football across different um, countries. So the fact that you're saying that, it must be great, absolutely. No, it's incredible. And, you know, I think some of the players were disappointed that we only let 11,000 in. There's still some spaces left. But um, but even, you know, the, the Kashmiris, you know, they don't have a lot to smile about. And this puts a smile on their face. Um, you know, before at games, it was only men that went to games. Now there's men, women, grandmothers, grandparents, kids, school kids, you know, little girls. It's just, it's an incredible family atmosphere. But at the same time, they're very, very passionate about their team and, and get behind the team, you know, so much. What are your ambitions for the club and yourself going forward? Do you fancy returning to Scotland yeah. and have you been offered any other jobs <clears throat> in Scotland? Yeah, I've been offered a few jobs in Asia and um, the Middle East. Um, but I, I think, you know, while I'm away from home, it's I'm, I'm in a good situation here. I've got a good relationship with the, the owners and the, the back me and, you know, we've helped build the club together. You know, it's great. Um, but obviously, ideally, I'd like to, to go back to Britain at some point. But it's, it's very, very difficult to get back in. Um, but at the same time, it'd be very difficult to leave, you know, like the owner's here, Sandeep's. A, it's a, he's an amazing man. Um, even though we lost on the other day to Mohan Bagan at home, um, first defeat of the season, then he was in. He was complimenting the players. And, you know, a lot of chairman owners would turn their back on you if you if you lose a game, but he was in there, he, he still wanted to celebrate with the team when lose or draw, it's just, it's a great situation we're in here, obviously it's, it's a long way from home, which is, you know, obviously that's a difficult part, um, but you know, I think this season's, the first season that the club's actually got any expectations that people expect us to win the league or, or finish above third, um, and to be honest, I think the club, the players might be finding that a little bit difficult to start, um, but you know, I think the next step is ISL. There's no promotion or relegation, but um, <clears throat> that's a big franchise league. That um, maybe you know someday that's where the owner aspires to be. But at the moment, you know, we're enjoying it, and yes, if somebody came up in Scotland, they'll certainly be interested. I'll finish the interview with a series of quick-fire questions, if that's all right with you. Yeah, no problem. Um, who's the best player you played with in your career, or best players? Um, best player played with Brian Loudrop um, by a mile. What made Brian so so good? As Jim White famously said. Um, I, I I think um, I, I think just because he was obviously the ability was incredible, but um, <clears throat> he made my job so easy. I would pass the ball to Stuart McCall, run down the line. Stuart would give it to Brian Loudrop. He'd beat two or three players, and then he'd put the ball through the eye of a needle to me. Um, but just a, an incredible talent, and the amount of games he won us. Um, even in training, just watching him is it was just a pleasure. The top five players you played against? Um, top five players, I would say. Obviously, I played against David Beckham. I played against Decanio. Um, I think Alan Shearer was pretty good. Um, in his day, Van Hooydonk played against him. Um, Mark Overmars probably one of the best players that I've played against. And um, but the hardest player I've ever played against was a guy called Ivo Denbeman. You probably never heard of him. No. Um, <laughs> he played at Mont- he played at Montrose, Dunfermline. I think he was the Wraith Rovers or Falkirk Dundee. And <clears throat> I don't think he knew what he was doing when he was playing against me, but every game he played against me, he destroyed me. Um, 
and, and it was weird because a lot of the times I'd maybe be playing against him, he's at, um, who it was Dunfermline, maybe he's at Dunfermline, next week he signs for Dundee, and we're playing Dundee the next week. It was almost like I was always playing against him, and he gave me such a hard time, and um, you know, I played against him many times and never managed to work him out. That's amazing. Um, who's the best manager you've had in your career that helped you as a player and also was great at getting the best out of everyone in the dressing room? Um, obviously, I, I was obviously Alex Ferguson, and he's but you know, it was only the early part of his career. But I think for me, Walter Smith, um, for me personally, I had six great years with him. Um, he looked after me, and, and as I say, I think it, I've taken a lot of the things on board how he looks after players and treats players. And you know, it's not all about being a sergeant major, it's about you know, making sure you know each personality. Um, but I think for, for me, you know, just as a, as a player, I knew that he could go and basically spend any money by him he wanted. And that he stuck by me for the six years I was there, and you know, I was never dropped. Um, so, you know, I think um, I think just just for his man management, but also just the way that you know he gave me a, a great spell at Rangers. You talked earlier about the difficulty of managing part time with Elgin and Montrose. What advice would you have for any part time managers in Scotland? Um, I think you've got to, you know, if you come from playing or, or being at higher levels, you've got to understand that these guys are, you know. You know, two nights a week, they've been working all day, and uh, they've got to enjoy what they're doing. You know, tactically, it's very difficult to get a lot through, so you've got to be very basic with it. Um, and, you know, I think you've just got to accept mistakes that these players make because they're going to make a lot more. That's why they're at that level. Um, but it's enjoyable as well. I, I did, I commended a lot of players in my time that, you know, you look at professional players that they train, or in my day, we train a couple of hours a day, and then every morning, that, oh, we don't have a day off this day. These guys are doing a full day's work. Um, you know, I had guys at Elgin, full day's work, and you know, then they're travelling to Elgin, or, or, or they're travelling to Perth, or Stirling, not getting home till late. Um, and then the weekends are basically taken over as well. So um, I take my heart off to them, but you know, I just think you've got to, I think you've just got to be realistic when you're, you're coaching at that level. Staying on the theme of advice, you suffered a, a, a few injuries and you said your time at Leeds was particularly tough with injuries. What advice would you give yeah. to any current footballer struggling with a bad injury or recovering from one? Um, exactly. It's very, very difficult. Um, you know, some people deal with it differently. Um, I had a thing where I couldn't go and watch the team play. I didn't go and watch the, uh, Leeds play for probably about a year because I felt so down. Um, you've just got to find a, a mechanism that you know, I ended up starting a computer business in Leeds while the injury started, so it's something to take my mind off it. Um, but you can never replace, um, you know, I think the hardest part is going into training and seeing people train knowing that you can't join in. Um, so I, I think that's hard. Um, I do think when you've got a long-term injury, you need to take, you know, you train hard for two or three weeks, and then you need to take a week off um, just to escape from at all, um, because it gets get particularly in the early part of it when you know that you've probably got another two or three months before you're back. That's the, the the part that kills you. Last question for you, David is you mentioned Callum Higginbottom earlier and the fact he's joined yourself at Real Kashmir. <clears throat> if you could sign one yeah. player from the SPFL now, 
for Kashmir, who would it be and why would you sign them? Um, probably Morales from Rangers um, because we need somebody to score goals and he's got a nasty streak about him and that works well in India. <laughs> Brilliant answer. Um, thank you so much, David, for joining me on the Football CFB podcast. It's been a pleasure. Yep, I've enjoyed it. Perfect. Thanks a lot. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song